Welcome to the Hospital Finance Podcast, your go-to source for information and insights that can help you stay ahead of the challenges impacting healthcare finance. And now, the host of the Hospital Finance Podcast, Kelly Wisness. Hi, this is Kelly Wisness. Welcome back to the award-winning Hospital Finance Podcast. We're pleased to welcome Dr. Catherine McLean, MD, PhD, Professor of Medicine at the Weill Cornell Medical College, and a Senior Vice President and Chief Value Medical Officer at the Hospital for Special Surgery, where she leads the development and execution of strategies to measure, report, and improve healthcare value through its Center for the Advancement of Value in Musculoskeletal Care, which is recognized by the World Economic Forum as a value innovation hub. She is a nationally recognized expert on healthcare quality and value with diverse leadership experience in her current role and previously as an executive at Elevance Health a principal investigator on numerous academic research projects at UCLA and RAND, and as a director, chair, or participant on numerous national boards, committees, and panels related to healthcare quality and value. Dr. McLean obtained her MD from Washington University in St. Louis. She obtained her PhD in health services from UCLA's School of Public Health. In this episode, we're discussing value and musculoskeletal care. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. McLean. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, great. Well, let's jump in. So the Hospital for Special Surgery, or HSS, was recently designated as a value innovation center by the World Economic Forum. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, so um, at the 2019 annual Davos meeting, the World Economic Forum launched its Global Coalition for Value and Healthcare. And really what kind of, you know, drove this is this burning platform, not just in the U.S., but worldwide, there's growing concern over the sustainability of healthcare. It's expensive. Costs are growing exponentially, and this puts you know, severe strains on budgets. And, you know, those budgets may be different in different countries. And, you know, in the U.S., these strains are both on the government and private employers who, you know, shoulder a huge part of the costs in our system. But it's an issue everywhere. So, you know, this the World Economic Forum put together this coalition, um, which is a collaboration before between the World Economic Forum and you know the World Economic Forum is really the international organization for public-private cooperation. So on the one hand, it's the World Economic Forum, and the other, you know, all different, you know, leading healthcare stakeholders, you know, to promote and drive global health system transformation. So as part of this, you know, they um, wanted to designate um, value innovation hubs. Um, and those are, it's a group of, you know, mature early adopters of value-based healthcare. Um, and those early adopters, you know, through this initiative can showcase and be proof of concept um, about creating improvements um, in both patient outcomes and cost savings. So it was a, you know, it was a rigorous evaluation process and we applied and they really looked to see, you know, uh, do you deliver good outcomes? Are you able to deliver care in a value-based way? Do you have the capabilities to do value-based contracting? You know, have you demonstrated success? So, you know, that's what it is. Um, and we're we're new. <laughs> you know, we just recently got this designation. Um, we're excited to work with the World Economic Forum and other partners to. Um, 
try to advance value-based healthcare, um, both in the U.S. and, and internationally. Um, for us, we see it as a really good opportunity to, you know, share what we've done, but also for us to learn um, what others have done in the value space, you know, what we can learn from them to apply to our own, to the care that we deliver. That sounds great. And so what makes HSS high value? So value um, is a relationship between quality and cost. So consumers make value decisions every single day. You go to the grocery store, you go to buy gas, you know, any, anything you purchase, you're making inherent you know, value decisions. So I think it's not, it's not such a, a difficult concept. I think where the challenge comes in is that it's hard for consumers to understand the value of healthcare, you know, first of all, to understand the quality of the care at the place they're going, and then also to understand the cost. Both are pretty um, opaque in healthcare. Um, but what makes HSS value um, high value is that we, we do deliver extraordinarily high quality care. Um, this isn't just based on what I say. This is based on what lots of different, you know, external um, quality assessors look at. So CMS measures our quality, U.S. News and World Report measures our quality, and you know we are um, among the highest quality places in the U.S. Um, and those are based on metrics such, kind of standard metrics that we currently look at, things like complications or um, the need to have a reoperation or readmissions, um, those sorts of things. Um, also very high satisfaction. Um, I think as a, a very early adopter in terms of next generation quality measurement, and honestly, while we need to first do no harm, nobody goes to a hospital, you know, to get a complication or to avoid a complication, right? Um, we're really going to hospitals to get better, right? And so we ought to be measuring whether patients are getting better, you know, with the procedure that they undergo or the treatment they undergo at the different hospitals. So we've implemented as a standard of care, looking at patient reported outcomes. So we actually look and see, we're an orthopedic hospital. Um, if a patient has a hip or knee replacement, do they have an improvement in their pain? You know, have they had an improvement in their function? And we measure this for every single patient. All right. So, um, and we do have very, very good outcomes. And so that's the kind of the quality side of that value equation. And on the cost side, um, I think the thing that's really important to think about when we think about cost is it's not about the unit cost. It's about the episode cost. So from the time a patient comes in to have a procedure or or comes in for a recommendation on a treatment, which could be a procedure, it could be a you know a drug treatment, um, to some time period later. So if it happens to be a surgical procedure, we're usually thinking in terms of 30 or 60 or 90 days. If it's someone who has a um, non-surgical procedure, we, we typically think in terms of maybe six months or a year and to see how that patient's doing. And it's the cost of that whole episode. So you could have one hospital, maybe they're less expensive, but maybe they have a very high readmission rate. And so the cost of care, you know, goes up. Or maybe that hospital does a lot of unnecessary stuff. So maybe they send patients to nursing homes when patients don't really need to go there. Maybe they do x-rays that aren't necessary. Maybe they do tests that aren't necessary. Then all that stuff adds up. Um, and there are big differences. And so I think that when, you know, when we look at our value proposition, it's about number one, 
delivering the highest quality care, and then doing it in the most cost efficient way. And that cost efficiency, you know, we think about in terms of kind of the whole patient across a whole episode of care. Sounds great. Uh, So what are some examples of low value musculoskeletal care? So low value care, you know, really is doing stuff that's not necessary. So that's kind of the, the big, the big, the big thing you want to look at there. And for musculoskeletal care, I think the kind of poster child is unnecessary spine surgery. So patients who have a spine surgery, that's not necessary. Um, other examples of low value care, you know, include imaging that's not necessary. So either um, doing an x-ray, any type of imaging study when it's not needed. Uh, again, this happens quite a lot with, with back pain. We know this nationally. Um, and then, you know, doing it, doing a more advanced image when a, a simple plain film, you know, would suffice. Those are kind of ap- examples. I think another example in the musculoskeletal space is we see this in some geographic areas there seems to be a lot of arthroscopy done. So that's like when you stick a scope in a body part. So for example, in a knee, um, and then, you know, within the next year, the patient ends up having a knee replacement surgery. So most of the time it's not necessary to do an arthroscopy before someone has a knee replacement. Um, and that would be regarded as, as low value care. What is HSS's experience in value-based programs? So um, we've had the opportunity to participate in a number of value-based contracting arrangements. Um, I would say our biggest experience has been through CMS, um, through um, some Medicare programs. We participated in both the um, BPCI or, or Bundled Payment for Care Improvement um, Bundle Payment Program, um, then also the CJR Comprehensive Joint Replacement um, bundle payment program. And the way that those programs worked is that basically CMS would look at how much it costs to take care of a Medicare beneficiary over a 90-day time period. So those were 90-day bundles. Um, and then they said, okay, so in this geographic area, it costs us you know, this amount of money on average to take care of a patient for 90 days. And that included everything. So if a patient got discharged from the hospital, if they are readmitted, if they used nursing home services, um, if they had a colonoscopy, <laughs> it's just everything that happened in that 90 days. And obviously a colonoscopy is unrelated to um, a, a knee replacement. Um, so anyways, they looked at that and then they came up with, they understood what that average was. They took a discount off of the top of that, like around 5%, um, and then said to the hospitals or the conveners in that area, if you want to participate in this program, and some of these programs are mandatory, um, the CGR in some some geographic areas was mandatory, um, then we'll pay you this amount of money um, to take care of the patient at that time period. And I'll just kind of walk through an example. And the, the numbers were different in different geographic areas. And I'm going to use $25,000 just as an easy number to use. Um, so if you assume the average cost was $25,000 um, in an air geographic area, um, it was a retrospective bundle. So CMS would go back and look at the cost of care for every individual patient during that 90-day period. And so if a patient costs more than $25,000, CMS would say, okay, this patient costs um, 
$30,000. So, you know, hospital, you owe us $5,000 for this patient. Then the next patient, maybe it only costs $20,000 to take care of that patient. It's like, okay, hospital, we owe you $5,000 and on and on, right? So CMS would tally this across all the different patients. Um, and at the end of the day, if the hospital came out in the black, the hospital would get to keep that savings. Um, but if the hospital went over, they would owe that money to CMS. And the thing that was so great about that program was that you know, a few things happened. One, CMS shared with us the administrative data. You know, so as a patient, um, we could see exactly what's happening. We could see how much nursing home utilization, how many readmissions, where patients were being readmitted, what services were being used. Um, and we were able to kind of build a program around that to really um, drive care efficiencies and improve quality at the same time. Um, and another kind of thing that happened with that is that the money, you know, that uh, reconciliation money that we got, you know, we could use for different administrative programs that aren't that aren't covered in a fee for service world. So we put into place um, a this is before the pandemic a uh, video uh, physical therapy program, and so our patients, instead of having a physical therapist come into the house, and this would be through a, like a home health agency, we would have one of our therapists, um, possibly even one that took care of them when they were in the hospital, do video therapy in the post-acute space. So that's, you know, for the six weeks after, after surgery. Patients loved it. Um, our staff loved it. We felt much more connected with our patients and we were able to kind of help with, you know, other things that came up as well. Um, we were able also to put together a care management type of a program where we identified patients who were high risk. And if they were high risk, you know, we would have nurse practitioners, you know, follow up on them, you know, after they were discharged from the hospital, just to make sure that they were okay. Um, and I think we averted, you know, a number of ER visits and hospitalizations through that program. And, you know, that's not something that you can bill for, um, but it's something that we were able to pay for through this um reconciliation money that we got through this bundle payment program. So I think it was a net win for CMS, for us, um, and most importantly, you know, for the patients. We've also participated in a few other bundle payment programs, uh, like I said, the BPCI and BPCI Advanced Program for CMS. Um, we have some limited experience uh, working with individual um, employers um, and with uh, what I would call intermediaries who um, are kind of a they're not new, but it's an entity that sits between employers um, and providers and will, you know, in some ways, they're not the insurance company, but, you know, in some ways act like an insurance company in that they are putting together networks um, and figuring out the price for certain procedures and then directly connecting the patient um, to the providers in those networks. Um, so I think that's an interesting entity and, uh, you know, we'll see how that, that plays out over the next several years. Very impressive and quite interesting. Uh, so what barriers prevent advancing more high value care? Our whole health system is really built upon a fee for service chassis and, you know, if you think you should get down to just basics of healthcare, not health care delivery, but the administration sort of, you know, payment part of it, 
there are huge systems in place you know, at health plans. They, they process about a zillion claims a day across the country, right? And it's really important to be able to understand what services were provided and then how much we're going to pay for them, right? And so big systems, um, both in the insurance companies and, you know, at among care delivery systems. And so I think it's just really hard at a level to buck that system administratively, right? So we have conversations with payers, you know, all the time. And it's difficult to, even though, you know, we have the highest volume orthopedic, the highest volume orthopedic hospital in the country, you know, we're smaller than a lot of other hospitals. And for a health plan to put together a value-based program, you know, just for us is administratively costly, right? So I think that that's a big challenge um, is, is this infrastructure that we have, which is quite good at servicing fee-for-service payments, but, you know, really wasn't um, developed for value-based payment. And then I think the other Another barrier is just the fragmentation of our of our care system. And so we see that fragmentation both in the delivery of care um, and in the payment of care. And I think that those are pretty substantial barriers to getting to value-based care. And there, I think there are a lot of people who are interested in getting to value-based care, you know, employers, um, insurance companies, care delivery systems, but there are some big obstacles that we have to overcome to get there. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so what should employers be thinking about when they are building care networks for their employees? Yeah, so I think that the, again, trying to get out of this fee-for-service mindset and, you know, just understand that, and I'm sure that the listeners to this, many listeners of this podcast probably are in the position of looking at these monthly reports and looking at, you know, what was my spend last month? Um, my spend in orthopedics was this. My spend, you know, was for these procedures, you know, or, or imaging. And we need to get beyond this um, kind of easy way to look at, an easy and standardized way to look at the cost of care to getting to more of an understanding of costs across an episode. So rather than saying, oh, we spent this much money on knee replacements last year and this, you know, this many patients and this many knee replacements, we should really be looking at, ooh, we had this many patients in our network who had osteoarthritis. This many of them got knee replacements and this was the overall cost of care. Um, for those patients who got any replacements over, say, a 90-day period. Um, and this was our overall cost of care you know, for patients, our population with osteoarthritis. Um, there's just huge expenditures on unnecessary care um, and just constantly driving toward lower unit cost is not going to lower costs overall. I mean, there's, I'm, I'm sorry to report, but there's a, a long history in medicine of, you know, basically watching a payer lower the price on something and then subsequently the volume of that thing goes up, right? So, that, that, you know, that, that would suggest that there's more unnecessary care happening. Um, so, I think that, you know, employers really need to kind of get out of that unit cost mindset um, and think about 
uh, overall episode costs and then as best they can, and you know, this is going to take you know some work in their analytics, is to start thinking about things on a population basis. Let me give you an example. At HSS, um, every year my team does this analysis where we look at all the patients that got referred to us, we're a referral center, and um, we look at all the patients that were referred to us to have a surgery. And 35% of the time, this was last year's data, 35% of the time, when a patient was referred to us for spine surgery, our spine surgeon said, you don't need a surgery, right? And so that's not coming up anywhere in the analyses that employers are currently looking at. So that's kind of getting more at that population kind of basis. And I mean, honestly, avoidance of unnecessary surgery, that's where the money is. That's where employers are really going to save their money. Um, and we need to figure out a way to measure that so that employers know where they should you know, send their patients. Sounds great. Um, so how will AI impact care value? Ah, AI. Um, there's so much, you know, fun and exciting stuff um, about AI just in our daily lives, um, but also, you know, in, in medicine. Um, I think that um, there's a lot of opportunity, but I think we have to uh, be cautious. I think that there are some people who think that, like, if you just throw all the data, <laughs> you know, into like a stew and we mix it up with the right Right, right kind of machine learning that we're going to you know get all these wonderful answers unfortunately you know the data in our health system um, are pretty fragmented as well that being said um you know there was a recent article published um, in JAMA internal medicine where um, a group of researchers looked at an old reddit blog so um, reddit has a you know, a, a subreddit where uh, people can go on and ask real doctors, you know, medical questions. And so there was a record of this. And so it took all these questions and answers, right, that were posted on this Reddit um, blog. And then they went and asked, asked ChatGPT those same questions. All right, so ChatGPT then gave the answers. And then the researchers took you know, the questions and then the answers either from the real doctor or from ChatGPT and had you know, people evaluate those, right? So they had experts, you know, clinical experts, you know, look at the answers. And, you know, the end result was is that ChatGPT did really well. <laughs> ChatGPT, you know, at least in that study had answers, these evaluators thought their answers were as good or better um, than those of the real doctor. Um, now, that being said, that was one question, you know, that, that was one little example. Um, chat GPT or large language models, um, people have kind of had them take medical tests, you know, like for board exams and that sort of thing. And they pass, not with flying colors, they pass. Um, but I think that in the future, you know, these large language models, which can just digest enormous amounts of information, are going to get better. And I think that they're going to do a good job. Um, and I don't think they're going to replace doctors, but I think they are going to help doctors do a better job. 
you know, for example, reviewing all the data in a patient's chart and summarizing it kind of in a in a kind of an easy way. Um, I think that's one way. I think other things that chat that that uh, AI, not large language models, but other types of AI, like computer vision, you know, might be uh, certainly will be useful in helping us do a better job. Um, interpreting radiographs or pathology slides or retinal images. Um, we've done some work um, in the predictive space where we have, you know, these large databases of, you know, you know, 30,000 patients who have participated in a registry and have, we have complete data on them. And we can predict pretty accurately, like, with an area under the curve of north of of 0.8, so 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 about 80% accurate. What the likely outcome is going to be if a patient is going to have a knee replacement? So we can tell somebody with about 80% accuracy if they undergo if they're thinking considering a knee replacement if their outcome would be you know super good that they'd be somewhat improved or if they wouldn't get better, they may not, might not get, get better or maybe they would even be worse after the procedure. And so I think that that sort of 80% accuracy along with a discussion with the surgeon, right, who can take into account many other factors um, is really helpful, right? So our surgeons that are using this, you know, with their patients, um, it really helps them, you know, to understand how likely it is a patient is going to get better. And, you know, patients, it's a big, you know, Surgery is a big deal. Most surgeries are kind of a big deal um, and something patients should understand. So I think that I think that the the future is bright. You know, I I think that AI is going to help us harness, help us to understand, you know, vast amounts of data um, and glean new insights. You know, I think personalized medicine will be really helpful for and, um, but I don't think it's like we see in some science fiction movies where you see a patient lay down like in some pod or something and and it it, it the AI you know says what's wrong and then like administers the, the, the treatment all at once. I, I don't I don't know that we will ever get to that point. <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> it is certainly a, a growing and interesting field, that's for sure. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. McLean, and for sharing all this really great information with us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Um, a lot of fun to talk about this stuff, and um, thank you for having me. Yeah, and if a listener wants to learn more or contact you to discuss this topic further, how best can they do that? Um, they can... Uh, contact me through our value center. So the value center, the, the email address is valuecenter at hss.edu. And uh, be happy to respond. And, you know, if anybody, if any of the listeners are, listeners are interested um, in anything related to value-based care, we're always looking for partners and you would be interested to learn what folks are doing. Um, if anybody, you know, has any ideas about, um, how to advance things. We're, we're very collaborative and, and would, would love to uh, be involved. Fantastic. And thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. Until next time. This concludes our episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. For show notes and additional resources to help protect and optimize revenue at your hospital, visit Bessler.com forward slash podcasts. The Hospital Finance Podcast is a production of Bessler. Smart about revenue, tenacious about results.